Have you ever heard the phrase, the proof is in the pudding? Merriam-Webster asks, have you ever stopped mid-pudding to wonder how it might have some proof in it? As suggested by the expression, the proof is in the pudding. It's a very odd question, and I know I'm probably overthinking this, but can a pudding eater find some sort of evidence in his or her serving of pudding that testifies to the character of something else other than the pudding? And what exactly is the pudding anyway? You know, this phrase is pretty interesting. Again, Merriam-Webster says that generally the expression is used to say that the real worth, success, or effectiveness of something can only be determined by putting it to the test by trying or using it. Appearances and promises aside, just as the best test of a pudding is to simply eat it. That's the best way to test a pudding. Last week we discussed the danger of having correct information, but holding it only as an abstract idea in your mind and doing nothing with it. This is something we're famous for in the modern world. And we reviewed these sobering words from James 1, 22, where he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The proof is in the pudding. Don't, listen to, don't just listen to the word, but do it. Don't forget what you've heard. This teaching from James is beyond what I would categorize as a typical teaching from the Bible, such as do not steal or keep a tight rein on your tongue. This is, this is more like a meta-command. This is actually talking about teaching us how to interact with all the teachings in the Bible. So this is like a foundational principle, not just another command, but a principle of how we are to interact with the Word of God. And so it's, it deserves special attention. So, so when we read this in James, I think it's very import, important and foundational for us as Christians to think about using this principle of not just listening, but always doing something in response to the Word in every time we read the Bible, anytime we're in church, anytime God speaks to us. I, I got very frustrated when I tried to load Microsoft Word and Google Photos onto my Amazon Kindle Fire. And it just errors and it crashes. It's very frustrating. It's beyond annoying to have your productivity tools be frozen out because of the brand of your device. And you, basically, you have to have the correct operating system in order to run these branded softwares from rival companies. And Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, they've made it very difficult to use their products on a rival's thing. And by the way, I've always wanted to do this. Hey, Alexa, buy a David Bowie album. Hey, Siri, play Metallica's albums. Uh, anyone listening to this on their home thing? Their devices are now doing all that stuff. You see what I'm saying? That's what I'm doing. I'm being funny. Um, I think that what James is giving us here is an operating system and this principle of not being just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. He's saying, do not try to load the Bible's teachings in God's word for you without the operating system of immediately putting it into practice or resolving to put it into practice. When you hear a word from God, the correct procedure is to put it into practice immediately as far as it depends on you and to not let yourself forget 
as we all tend to do very shortly after the drive home from church. We all forget and we move on. If you load God's word and Jesus' teaching into an operating system of hearing, even being convicted of a word, but then forgetting soon after to put it into practice, that teaching is going to fail and crash, and you will actually become, uh, if you will, you will have a, the antidote to that teaching in your life because you will be, you'll begin to hearing, hearing him say it again, and you'll just sort of put this buffer between you and the teaching. Eventually, you can hear something, believe it, be convicted of it, and do nothing with it. It feels very natural. This is a bad problem to have. So the stakes are pretty high on this, in my opinion, putting into practice the words of God, putting into practice the words of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I believe that not only will that lead to failure in your Christian walk, not putting the word of God into practice, but it will lead to spiritual death. That's where it ultimately goes. In Matthew 25, a very troubling passage of Scripture, and if you're not troubled by the word of God, this is a good one to jump into, I think. It troubles me. Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And the Cliff Notes version is, the sheep and the goats are not separated by what they believe about Jesus, his death, his resurrection. Though those are foundational, important truths, they're separated based on which group put Jesus' commands into practice, either knowingly or unknowingly. I'm not saying that's a theology for all of the Bible. There's more theology to learn. But this is something that's supposed to trouble us, something that's supposed to say, are you doing the, th the stuff or are you a hearer who's not doing the stuff, slowly becoming ineffective, slowly dying inside as a Christian? So in our world, I think, as well as in the first century church, which the, Bible was, which the New Testament was written to, our greatest problem is not a lack of information. We have so much information, but we have a lack of action based on information that we've already been given. So we're forever hearers, but rarely doers, and it feels okay to us. Feels okay. I believe that when you not only hear the word, but begin to put it into practice, you can actually guarantee that you will begin to thrive spiritually, if, you know, in, in your life. That's going to be something that is going to be very, very helpful. It's going to make you feel like you're making progress, that you're, that you're not just like uh, shadow boxing in your faith hearing and doing the word. And that's one of our core values. Knowing and applying the word of God is what determines true success. That's what it is. Until then, you're just sort of shadow boxing and wasting your energy. I think that when we start putting God's into practice, we begin to experience what we hear about in other Christians' lives who we look up to. Because the Christians that you look up to are people that hear the word and put it into practice most of the time. It was a grandmother, a grandfather, a parent, a friend, someone you've heard of, maybe someone whose biography you read, someone uh, like, a, like a Bonhoeffer or, or a Corey Ten Boom or different people in history that have done amazing things for God. These people heard God's word and put it into practice, and God supplemented his written word with lots of prophetic words to guide them around in their lives, which is astounding. And I think that we always often feel, that's not my experience. Maybe I'm... Maybe I'm not quite the Christian I, I hope I am. I think that when you start obeying God's word, you start to experience that stuff too. So putting God's word into practice, putting it to practice together as a church, together in, in tight-knit community, I think we begin to get some real traction in our lives. Much of our tendency, I think, is, is, is uh, shown in this parable that Jesus told. 
about two sons in Matthew 21, 28 to 32. And Jesus asks his audience this question before telling a parable. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. But as they sat warming their pews, but when they left church and headed home, they didn't actually do it. And so, despite saying, I will do it, despite saying, I'm in, they didn't actually do it. But then someone, represented here by tax collectors and prostitutes, again, people thought, thought low, low, lowly in this society, uh, these people heard the message, and they put it into practice immediately. Non-religious people, changing the entire course of their lives, which is what repentance means, to change the course of your life, which we'll look at later. Jesus asks the crowd which son actually did what the father asked. And despite verbally saying, I will do it, the one who initially declined, but then came around later and actually did it, turned out to be the one in the right. The proof was in the pudding. The operating system is hearing and doing in community the word of God. Even if you decline at first, it matters what you do. I think it really is as simple as that. If you want to be a doer of the word in the midst of the community of the church, the body of Christ that he has established on the earth, to do so together and filled with the Spirit. It doesn't matter if you have all the ingredients on the list, the right theology and thoughts about God, the right information about God and his word. It has to be mixed together, and the recipe has to be completed in order for it to become what God intended it to be. We must not be hearers of the word and deceive ourselves. We must do what it says. In a book called The God-Soaked Life by Chris Webb, which we will be reading at the start of our small groups uh, very shortly, as they launch out in the coming weeks, it says of Jesus' proclamation, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near to you, that the word translated as repent, metanoia in the Greek, has less to do with confessing our wrongdoings, as we often think, and much more to do with an internal change of mind and heart. So a simplistic, literal rendering of the word, from language to language, would means to change one's mind. But it really has a much deeper and richer overtone than that. Jesus was not asking people simply to reconsider a few of their religious beliefs, to change a couple of lines in their personal creed, or adopt a slightly adjusted philosophy of life. We might capture the sense more closely by paraphrasing this word repentance as, quote, change your entire outlook on life, the worldview that shapes everything you think and do. Repentance. Change your entire outlook on life, the worldview that shapes everything you think and do. That's Chris Webb from The God-Soaked Life. Now, our tendency is, is to hear, to even believe, but not to change much of anything. That's our tendency. And that is the opposite of the idea of repentance. Jesus is after repentance. He's after listening, hearing, and changing our entire orientation and outlook on life in response to God's word. So everything we think, everything we do, is different from here on out. A radical, radical shift in our lives to make room for the work of God, and for the kingdom to come 
in the world. I always think, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was a call of John the Baptist and then Jesus. And uh, I love how the idea, when John, I believe John said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. You know, it's like a, I think of it as like a big landing strip in the center of my life. The seat of my emotions, my hopes, my dreams, my, how I spend my time, what I do. It's a runway where God can either land and do great things in me and around me, or where there's just no place for him to land. He has to circle above me, you know? That is an interesting thought. But if we respond to the word of God by repenting, by changing our whole outlook, our orientation, changing things in our life to make room for God and for his church, great things can happen. When God ordered the world and the creation and the cosmos and the earth as we know it, he did that by his word. He spoke and things came into existence, into being. And John, in his gospel, in John 1, he says that God's word is actually Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. Everything that was created was created through Jesus Christ before he was incarnated as a man. He was in the Trinity with God. And, uh, and God ordered the whole world through Jesus. He spoke, and let there be light, and there was light. He brought order to the chaos of the world. When he spoke, the elements came together exactly as he wanted them to and obeyed his word. I saw an interesting thing in Psalm, let me see which Psalm it was this week, Psalm 33, 8 and 9 this week. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You know, when God spoke to creation, into the, into the void, the cosmos, he spoke and things happened. It was so. And the psalmist encourages us in reverence to the God that did that, that when God speaks to us, that we are to choose to obey him, to put into practice what he says to us. That's what the psalmist is encouraging us to do. In light of the fact that he created all, and by a word he made it happen through Jesus, when he speaks to us, we are to, in reverence for who he is, put his words into practice. Some people are frustrated. Some people ask, why doesn't God simply choose to order our lives the way that he ordered the creation, to speak into our life? Make time for devotions in the morning, and that's so. You have your time with God. You know, Join a small group, and it was so. You know, these kinds of things. Why doesn't God choose to order our lives instantaneously the way he ordered the elements of creation? And the answer is because of love. The answer is because of love. God's dream from creation to the nation of Israel, to the church of this present day, which you and I are a part of, is to have a people for himself who choose to be his people, who in love and reverence for who God is, choose to hear God's word and put it into practice out of reverence for who God is, and to join together to form his body on the earth. God speaks over our lives, and unlike the Genesis account where God spoke and it came to be, God incredibly speaks over our lives, and in this radical and humble love, he gives us the choice to either put his word into practice or not. Let, let that sink in. He gives us the choice as he speaks over our lives to put his word into practice or not. The one who formed the world by his word gives us the choice. The ball is so often just in our court. And the proof is always in the pudding of what our life becomes. So we have this unique privilege among all of creation as God's beloved people 
not my words. Those who are chosen and dearly loved by God. The beloved of God, the bride of God, all of us together. We have this unique privilege in creation as God's beloved to choose to respond to God's word and thus to participate, if you think about it, in the very act of creation itself in reflection of our creator, creating with God something new in our own lives and around us as he shapes our lives and his world by his kingdom come. We have the privilege of choosing. He doesn't coerce us. He doesn't force us. If we are a husband, if it is a bride and her bridegroom, and we are the bride of Christ, what would you call a spouse that forced the other one to love them somehow or forced them to do something? You'd call that abuse. You wouldn't call that love. But have God's love for us, God who is rich in mercy and rich in grace and has paid for every sin by the blood of Jesus. He speaks his word over our lives. And he says, you, you get to choose. The mountains had to rise up. The seas had to be gathered together. But you get to choose, my beloved. Choose you this day who you will serve. Let me ask you a question. What would it take for you to make a major change in your life or your lifestyle? like repentance talks about. What would you be doing? What would, you be, would cause you to be willing to make room in your life for Jesus and his body of the church? Would you be willing to change your career, your job? Would you be willing to, to move from your house to another house that, that you can more easily um, use for ministry or be in ministry with? Would you be willing to change how you spend your money? Would you be willing to change your geographic location altogether like some people do for God and his kingdom? Would you be willing to sacrifice or change how you vacation, the people that you consider your friends? Would you be willing to change as parents how your children spend their time and moderate the activities that they spend their time doing? To change the way that you both eat and prepare meals and with whom you prepare and eat meals with, inviting people into your own domicile. Would you be willing to, what would cause you to be willing to change who you consider to be your family in your heart from those who are biologically connected to you through DNA to other people that God calls your family of the church? What would it take for you to change the routines that you have established and made into the laws of how your life is run that make your household hum, that make your personal life work? What would it take to make a big change like that? And really the question is, what would it take to make room for Jesus in your life? Because Jesus, if we're going to be devoted to Jesus, it takes time. It takes devotion to his people, like what we do in small groups. In our overcrowded and marginless life, lives, we have to ask this question. Because there's not going to be any changes in any room for Jesus unless we get rid of some things. It's just the fact you can want to make change. You can say, I'm going to make a change. But if all of the things in your life are too sacred to, to, to adjust, then you'll never make a change. You have to make room for life. And life as a, as a, as a uh, way of talking about Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. You have to make a way in your life for the life of Christ to rise up. God's powerful word is still speaking over his creation and we are given the choice to either put it into practice and live or to ignore it. And God does not control us, even though he's very persistent 
He does not control us in his love for us. In a book called Whiter Than Snow by David Tripp, he says this, We weren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God and in a loving and humble interdependency with others. Our lives were designed to be community projects. Your life was designed to be a community project. Yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all that we need within ourselves So we settle for relationships that never go beneath the casual. We defend ourselves when the people around us point out a weakness or a wrong. We hold our struggles within, not taking advantage of the resources God has given us. To live a God-soaked life, as the book says, we must move beyond taking information to metanoia, to repentance, to changing our outlook on life, our worldview that shapes everything we think and do. We have to take hold of the resources God has given us in his church. The simple reason that people struggle uh, to overcome sin and the things that are shameful to them that they wish they could break free from, they are not utilizing the resource of the church. You know, that's, that's just how it is. The reason that um, people struggle in marriage is so that they're not utilizing the resource of the church and of their spouse that God's given them to, to help them. You know, there's that interdependence, uh, that, that dependency upon God, interdependence with other people. You know, we need, if we're going to be serious in our relationship with God, we need to change our outlook. We need to look at our lives. We have to make room for the life of God to, be, to rise up. This is definitely in our DNA. When I preached through the core values this, earlier this year, we said uh, faith, achieving God's purposes means taking faith-filled risks. This always involves change. As John Soper formed these core values based on Scripture. But it says, achieving God's purposes means taking faithful risks. This always involves change. And I, like Julie confessed earlier, I, I resonated with her. I actually do not like change at all. I like routines. I've told people that this week, both in my personal life. I also like routines in the church. I like events to happen on this day every year and to prepare for it, then be done with it and move on to the next thing. I love routines. I love plans. I like knowing what to expect and then having the thing I expect happen. It's wonderful. I'm just like most people. People are, to a greater or lesser extent, just like that. But not by a choice of our own. We are thrust into a situation in our world where we're being asked to make changes, right? And some of us are trying to pull back to the steady routines that we had before. I've I've had that struggle in my own life of wanting to get back to normal and just let's go back to church as we knew it. There's part of me that pulls me in that direction. But that's not the voice of God to me at all. That's not what God's saying to me. God's saying this is an opportunity to become a people who respond to my word and go deep together, not just on a Sunday morning, but in, in all of their lives to see the work of God come forward. So not by a choice of your own, I will say, I'm asking you as your pastor to make room for Jesus Christ and his body of the church in your life. It's not a program of the church, it is the church. Making room for his body of the church to become devoted, as we talked about last week, to meeting together, both in small groups and in celebration with the larger body, to meet regularly, day by day, as it says in Acts 2.42, to make a routine of meeting with the body 
on Sunday and during the week, both in, in, in structured and unstructured fun activities that come together as the body. And I believe if we commit to this house-to-house fellowship, of course, exercising all safety and, and precautions that are needed, but we, we form these small groups, we do life with them, we commit saying, you are, you are important, you, I have time for this, you are my family. I think as we do that, we're going to see some real good spiritual fruit from that. Fruit that you could not get as by church the way we've done it. As I said last week, I, I would like to get to a point in, in the church where you would be more devastated by your small group leader leaving the church than you, than you would by the pastor. The pastor could come and go, but your little microcosm in the church is, is a place where if someone left the church, you'd be devastated and wonder how you can go on. I think that's the kind of family relationships God's calling us to here. So I think this is all, this is all very much a, uh, uh, an invitation from an uncontrolling God. He, with us, he, he treats us like the, like, like the bride, and he invites us. He speaks his word over our lives and says, do you want to put it into practice or not? I, I strongly hope you do because of my love for you. So for anyone that has ears to hear, repent. Believe the good news of God's kingdom. It's already here, and it's within you. Make room in your life. Make some substantial changes because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but he needs a place to land in your life. Jesus has defeated sin and death, risen again as our crucified Lord and Savior to lead us towards a vision of being his body, the church on the earth. We are his representation. We are his ministers. We are his holy priesthood. And this stuff, if it wasn't backed up by Scripture, would sound heretical. To say, think about that. We're so used to that term, the body of Christ. Calling us the body of Christ is amazing. I can't even believe it when it's saying it again here today. But we are his representation, who he dwells in by his spirit, joined together by every supporting ligament, growing into the head of the church, who is Christ, as each part does its work. And we are invited, as the God-soaked life points out, uh, to participate in, in the give-and-take flow that the Trinity has enjoyed for all for all of forever, eternity. The Trinity has lived in perfect community with itself, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together um, perfectly, even through creation. And he, and he invites us as the body to come and join in that give and take, to become co-creators of the kingdom with God, because God's chosen to build the kingdom through the participation of us, the church. So God's invitation is sent. I think that he, he says, who has time? Who has room? Who has time for me? Who has room for me in their lives? And, and I, think that, I think that objectively, that's not just a, a nice thing to say, but he, what he's saying is, you have time for my people, my body of the church. You have time to spend with me by spending with my people, by seeing my work. What drastic change do you need to make? So you have room for what you need more of Jesus, more of his body. That's kind of what all of this vision is about, not just a program of the church, but really a, a, for someone that likes things to just keep going the way they're going, is comfortable with routine, and prefers routine. I'm saying we need to get uncomfortable and, and, and get together and go deeper. That's what we need to do. I'm going to close with Luke 14, 15 to 24. Jesus was reclining at the table with his people. 
Again, he modeled this. He did this every day. He lived life with these people. And that's how the church started, right? When one of those at the table with Jesus heard him, heard him, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see to it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on the way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, 